This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 14 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, Alan Gray's view on the share market rebound and the way ahead after the COVID-19-inspired crash. Ron Whelan applies his mind to the major issues of the moment from the BCG vaccine to whether South Africa's lockdown will continue beyond April the 16th. We'll find out how a South African businesswoman who is stranded in Bali is running her operation by cell phone and bad news for the economy and property prices as a 4.5% contraction is now in prospect. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, although worldwide mortalities from COVID-19 are still on the rise and are approaching 80,000, there is compelling evidence that the two worst affected countries, which between them account for just under half, of the global 76,500 deaths, are past the worst. Data from Johns Hopkins University shows new infections in Italy peaked at 6,557 on March the 21st. They have declined steadily since, falling to around half that level now. Italy's first infection was recorded on the 31st of January, which indicates a timeline of 50 days to the peak. A similar trend is evident in Spain, where new infections hit a record high of 9,630 on March the 25th. That's 53 days after the first infection was reported. That was on February the 1st. Spain's new coronavirus infections are in a clear downward trend and also are now roughly half that of the peak. There's a similar curve for Iran, which was also hard hit with more than 3,000 deaths to date, where new infections are down by a third from the high recorded there on March the 31st. And there's a clear declining trend too in Germany. But the curve has yet to flatten in the other hardest hit nations, the United States, the UK, Netherlands, Belgium and France. In New York, the epicenter of the US's crisis, 731 deaths were reported Tuesday, the highest yet. But in reporting the news, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo emphasized that mortalities are a lagging indicator, adding that as the rate of hospitalizations are falling, he believes the spread of the virus has now plateaued in the state. South Africa's COVID-19 infections continue to surprise on the downside, with reported new cases Tuesday rising by 63 to 1,749, continuing the modest 4% a day growth rate of late. The country reported one more death, bringing the total to 13. South Africa's mortality rate is 0.02 people per 100,000 population, consistent with other countries where the TB vaccination BCG has been universally administered including India, which is at 0.01 per 100,000, and Japan at 0.07. Both of those countries were amongst the first outside of China to record infections. 
By contrast, the mortality rate in Italy, France, Netherlands and Belgium, which have never applied BCG vaccinations, are in double digits. In other words, between 500 and 2,000 times higher than Japan, India and South Africa. China, where COVID-19 originated, has a mortality rate of 0.24 per 100,000. That compares with 27 and 28 in Spain and Italy. As we reported earlier this week, research by New York Institute of Technology's Dr. Gonzalo Otazo provides compelling evidence that BCG vaccinations provide a shield against COVID-19 infection and mortality rates. More on that coming up in our interview with Discovery Health's Chief Operating Officer Ron Whelan. World leaders have rallied to wish British Prime Minister Boris Johnson a speedy recovery after he was admitted to an intensive care unit in London. Johnson is not on a ventilator, but is receiving oxygen to overcome his COVID-19 infection. German Chancellor Angela Merkel shared a photo of the two, wishing Johnson much strength and a speedy recovery, and said she hoped that he would leave the hospital soon, while French President Emmanuel Macron expressed his full support for Boris Johnson, his family and the British people. US President Donald Trump said he has asked two leading companies to contact officials in London to help with Johnson's treatment. We're very saddened to hear that he was taken into intensive care this afternoon, a little while ago, and uh, Americans are all praying for his recovery. He's been a really good friend. He's been really something very special, strong, resolute, doesn't quit, doesn't give up. This afternoon, the UK's acting Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb, said he's confident about Johnson's prospects. It comes as the death toll in the UK reached 6,150 and the country's health authorities say the country may finally be looking at the possibility of flattening the curve of the outbreak. I can tell you he's receiving the very best care from the excellent medical team at St Thomas's Hospital. He remains stable overnight. He's receiving standard oxygen treatment and breathing without any assistance. He's not required any mechanical ventilation or non-invasive respiratory support. He remains in good spirits and in keeping with usual clinical practice, his progress continues to be monitored closely in critical care and we'll give further updates on the PM's condition when there are any material developments. And I know that there's been a groundswell of messages of support uh, from people here at home, uh, from leaders across the world and I know that everyone will want to join with me in wishing the Prime Minister a very swift recovery. I think it's probably worth just remembering that, as will be the case for many people up and down the country who know someone at work who's fallen ill with the coronavirus, it comes as a shock to all of us. He's not just the Prime Minister, all of us in Cabinet, he's not just our boss, he's also a colleague and he's also our friend. But all of our thoughts and prayers are with the Prime Minister at this time, with Carrie and with his whole family. And I'm confident will pull through. Because if there's one thing I know about this Prime Minister, he's a fighter. And he'll be back at the helm, leading us through this crisis in short order. Resistance to COVID-19-inspired lockdowns is growing. Many videos of experts who decry the measure as being worse than the virus itself 
are now circulating online. Today, the doctor-turned-investor Michael Burry, who foresaw the global financial crisis and thus starred in the hit movie The Big Short, added his voice to the critics. In a series of tweets, Burry has said that government-directed shutdowns are unnecessary and will needlessly cause the U.S.'s deepest-ever economic contraction. He also said controversial treatments like the malaria drug chloroquine should be made more widely available. He says that instead of lockdowns, COVID-19 infections can be managed by common-sense measures like hand-washing, broader testing and sheltering the elderly and the vulnerable. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. South Africans are hopeful about the statistics around BCG vaccinations, which is applied universally in this country, and signs that the infection curve is flattening in Europe, but also worried about the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, especially if the current lockdown is extended. I put these questions to Discovery Health's Chief Operating Officer, Ron Whelan, when asking him for an update on how he sees things. Well, I think a few um, you know, important updates for the day. Yeah, firstly, we're now over 1.3 million infections, just, just short of 75,000 deaths globally. Um, but what is interesting is Europe is definitely beginning to plateau and flatten out, and most of the countries in Europe are, are flattening out. Uh, the U.S. You know, growth trajectory stays you know, um, reasonably strong, um, you know, both in deaths as well as in infections. But at the same time, also showing your early signs of flattening out. So when you begin to look at the numbers, two weeks ago, the U.S. was growing at 36% um, your compound daily growth rate. They're now, over the last, the last two and a half weeks, are down to 20% your compound daily growth rate. So, so while the numbers are scary coming out of the U.S., there's a definitely a flattening of the curve. Looking you know, at similar numbers for Europe, Europe uh, um, in you know, the first two weeks of March was growing at 21% your compound daily growth rate is now down to 8% uh, compound daily growth rate over the last year, two and a half weeks. Mm. The really, you know, I guess the encouraging thing is that uh, you know, South Africa is, is, is looking really good. Yes, over the last year, two weeks, two and a half weeks or so, we're at 12% your compound daily growth rate. And in fact, yeah, the last um, you know, week or so, we're now below 10% your compound daily growth rate. So this is um, you know, looking very positive you know, for South Africa at the, you know, at the moment. That said, yeah, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. And yeah, as you've seen in many other countries, this is like a, a wildfire and can flare up at, uh, at any point, yeah, particularly in your know, communities who you know, lose control of this. And yeah, I think we've seen this play out in you know, places like Lombardy in Italy. We've seen it play out in New York. We've seen it play out in uh, New Orleans and um, you know, in the U.S. Yeah, so uh, certainly not out of the woods yet, but um, you know, some, some very promising signs. Ron, why is South Africa so low? Only 13 deaths. Uh, in fact, the latest day-on-day increase is 3.7%. We had 4% the day before. So you say below 10%, but it's, but it's even in, in low single digits. It doesn't seem to be following any of these international trends uh, in Europe. It much, uh, is following much more like in Japan and India, where also the numbers are relatively low. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there's a few uh, important um, you know, considerations in that, and there's no you know, one single answer. I think yeah, the first um, thing you know, worth noting is South Africa's response has been very, very solid. 
you know, we're a good two weeks ahead of the curve, um, you know, in terms of you responding to this. Your government um, pulled out you know, all of the measures and all of the stops to you know, um, get us into you know, the best position possible. So I think your credit to you know, the way South Africa has responded over the um, you know, to to this year potential year crisis. I think you know, the second thing that's uh, you know, we need to uh, acknowledge is that. Um, yeah, there is a chance that our testing is yeah, under under penetrated. So we've done just short of 60,000 tests. And when you compare that to you know, countries like um, you know, Australia and Korea, you know, have done you know, well over four four hundred thousand and five hundred uh, five hundred thousand tests. So we just haven't tested as many people. Um, and if you haven't tested as many people, there's always a chance that you're going to be missing some you know, infection. So I think yeah, that's you know, an important yeah, second second criteria. I think you know, the third thing that's uh, you know, is obviously playing out is uh, you know, questions being raised around you know, the uh, the impact of this of this virus on your know, different your population groups. And you know, up until you know, the last um, you know, few weeks or so, it had been untested in an African you know, population you know, group. And there is, there are some schools of thoughts thought to say, look, it may affect you know, um, you know, black, black Africans you know, differently to you know, the way it you know, impacts you know, Europeans. Um, that said, we are seeing you know, some um, uh, uh, some some pretty bad statistics here coming out across you know, African Americans in the, in the U.S. As I mentioned a little bit earlier on, um, Louisiana is you know, seeing an outbreak, and that's largely in you know, the the African American you know, population. So. That does put a little bit of pay to uh, uh, put put a few questions around um, you know, different um, you know, population groups. Ron, what about the BCG vaccination? The, the the evidence from the New York Institute of Technology is compelling, and I spoke to Dr. Gonzalo Itazu uh, earlier the week this week, and he said yes, it's it's uh, he's correlating things, and the, but the correlation of the non-BCG vaccinated countries. And the BCG vaccinated countries are massive. The difference is there between 500 and 2,500 times more likely to get COVID-19 or uh, to, to have mortality rates on COVID-19 if you hadn't been vaccinated with BCG. Yeah, I mean, this, this is looking very promising and very interesting. Yeah, that, that said... Uh yeah, it, we are still early stages on this, and you know, the, 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 you know, while the correlations are looking good, there are some you know, curious observations that are playing out as well. Um, yeah, so for instance, you know, Australia is at a past national BCG vaccination policy is low. Um, yes, Spain, on the other hand, has had a past national BCG vac- vaccination policy and, and is high. You know, similarly, in the UK, they did have a past national BCG vaccination and um, yeah, in, in the UK, but yeah, the infection counts are, are continuing to climb there. And, you, know, you see the same thing in the Scandinavian countries. They've also had you know, past um, BCG vaccination policies, and you know, the numbers are continuing to climb there. But certainly across uh, uh, many African countries, South America, um, yeah, the Indian subcontinent, you know, where you know, we still have your know, current national BCG vaccina- vaccination policies, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that you know, suggests a, a stronger correlation you know, with uh, BCG. The other interesting example that plays out is Mexico. So Mexico also has a, a current national BCG vac- vaccination policy, and you know, the numbers there are very, very low at, at this stage, and you know, the infection you know, trajectories you know, remain, remain low. So, um, yeah, encouraging signs. Um, there, there are additional reports on BCG providing uh, immunity to a broader, broader, ranges of, broader range of disease. 
Yes, so while it's a, um, a vaccination for TB, which is a bacteria, um, it does seem to provide you know, additional benefit to a broader range of you know, viruses, and that's been proved in you know, several clinical studies over the you know, the last many many years. So, your know, fingers crossed. This would be this would be great news for South Africa. South Africa has a very very strong BCG na- uh, national vaccination policy, and uh, yeah, I mean we, we need all the all the help we can get, and and yeah, if this plays out in that way, it'd be wonderful news. I did ask Dr. Otazio about Spain. Uh, not unfortunately on the record um, uh, while we were recording, and he said yes, but they had a policy only for a very short period of time. So it's it's interesting that that his correlations. Uh, he's he said to me he's also uh, putting it up for peer review at the moment. So it's very yeah. early stages, as you say, but at least it is something that uh, that that we can hope for. What about Ron? What about the the lockdown? What about the likelihood? Of it being extended, because many South Africans are now we're now halfway through it. Um, we haven't seen the hospitals being flooded with COVID-19 patients as many feared, and yet we're still concerned that the lockdown might go on for some time longer. Yeah, Alec, uh, your judgment here is probably as good as my judgment here, and I think you're all watching you know, this, this closely, and there are a number of factors at play. There's you know, public health policies at play, and there are you know, economic you know, considerations at, uh, at play. You know, none of us have had any word around you know, which you know, I think you know, these discussions are happening you know, behind the scenes, and you know, we'd obviously need to make these decisions you know, over the next you know, few days or so. Uh, I think uh, there's two two uh, two ranges of possibilities. I think uh, the first one is uh, uh, an extreme you know, range. So when you look at your latest BCG reports, they're pointing to an infection um, uh, a peak around about you know, the uh, the beginning of June um, you know, for South Africa, which would put put us into lockdown terrain you know, well into June and you know, potentially into you know, July. That's one end of the, the extreme. I think you know, what's, uh, you know, the BCG report is a, is a very solid report and you know, great you know, public health uh, modeling. What it doesn't take into account is some of the economic considerations in deciding you know, when to pull back on a lockdown. So that's the one end of the extreme. I think you know, the other end of the extreme is you know, pulling us back to next week, you know, April the 16th, and you know, um, you know, I would say for, for you know, April as a whole. Um, yeah, our feeling is that it, it probably – won't and you know, most of the um, you know, the employers and you know, um, your corporates we're working with feel that it probably won't end on the on the 16th. Um, you know, if at all possible, we will see some. Um, yeah, you know, you know, if the, the infection trajectories continues continues there are, there is you know, some likelihood that we might see some um, you know, pullback around the, on the lockdown you know, the following weeks, so the week of the 20th. Um, that said, yeah, you know, given the Upcoming uh, public holidays in April, so we have the 27th of April, we have the 1st of May. There is a, a strong argument to be made and say, look, you know, productivity is probably going to be reasonably low. You know, might need to then extend into you know, the, you know, the 1st of May or first week in May. I think uh, related to that, what we'll, we'll likely see is a, a, a staged comeback in the, the economy. You know, I think uh, certain sectors will come back online before other sectors. Um, you know, given you know, mining, manufacturing, you know, agriculture to extent, you know, the heartbeat of the economy. I think uh, there's a, you know, a a good logic for bringing those those back online. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you know, lockdown ends, uh, I, I don't think we'll be back uh, you know, at full tilt to 
you know, business as, as usual. I think uh, there will be many policies in place you know, relating to social distancing and spatial separation and you know, various you know, human movements you know, over the, the course of you know, many months to come. You know, as I said a little bit earlier, there's always a chance that this uh, infection rate you know, begins to spiral again. And uh, you know, we've, we've done a, you know, a, a really, really good job up until now, and we don't want to let it you know, slip away at the, at the final hurdle. Share prices around the world have rebounded strongly in the past week as there is more certainty about the impact of COVID-19. As stock markets are a leading indicator, the performance of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, which has risen by a quarter since its recent trough, is telling us that South Africans might be able to start looking forward to better days in the not-too-distant future. Here's Alan Gray Director Duncan Artis. Um, yeah, well, I mean, just as a matter of interest, the South African stock market's up 26% in rands, already from the bottom. We bottomed around 37,800, and, and, you know, we're over, almost back at 48,000 today. Um, obviously, the rand has weakened quite substantially, so the returns in, in dollars aren't, aren't right. I think that if you look, follow markets quite closely, some of the moves are just astounding, and you can't explain them with, with fundamentals. So what we've kind of been saying to people is, you know, markets go up and down, and most of the trade in offshore markets got nothing to do with fundamentals. It's algorithms, it's ETFs, it's high-frequency traders, it's leverage traders, it's risk parity funds, and, you know, those things are very difficult for for all us normal sort of investors to, to understand, but that's why you're having these huge moves in, in, in the markets. And I think what's particularly important is a lot of South Africans focus mainly on the equity markets, because I guess it's easier to see, but the big dislocations offshore, and, and indeed we had a little bit chance that was actually in the credit and fixed income markets, which are supposed to be lower risk um, assets. Mm. They pretty much seized up at one point. Yeah, no, in South Africa, the, um, there was a day where the bond spiked a couple of hundred basis points, and you know, you've hardly ever seen that before, and uh, the, the primary market makers, in other words, the people who buy and sell um, the bonds, uh, I think there are nine of them in South Africa, I stand corrected, I think seven of them were, were didn't want to make a market on the one day because they had so much stock put onto their, their own balance sheets. And of course, they have to hold capital against that. And they weren't able to offlay the, the bonds somewhere else. And we know in America, I think they had the $250 billion of outflows in one week, I think, or a month from, from bond funds. Because kind of what happened is in this rush for cash, people are selling what they can, not what they want to. So the first things you sell are the more liquid, um, sort of higher quality fixed income assets you have. The problem with that is more and more of your portfolio gets made up of, of more exotic credit instruments, which are which they're not liquid markets for. Now, you did mention how strongly South Africa's stock market has recovered off the very worst or almost that blow-off phase. Have you taken advantage of that? Have you been able to keep your head while others have been losing theirs? I hope so. We're only going to know. I mean, what we've really been doing is I haven't been focusing too much on on performance or the funds. It's just doing what's in front of you and, and trying, you know, to to do what's correct. And one nice way of saying is making less mistakes than, than anybody else, right? That's what we we're trying to do here. And yeah, I mean, there's just uh, I don't know if you've seen the screen today, but you know, the Reserve Bank held a call this morning where they'd initially put out that banks' dividends had to will have to be suspended, but they clarified that the ones that had already been declared look like they can be paid out, and their banks all of a sudden up 19%. Now, I don't know what the difference is between today and tomorrow, unless people were already pricing that Nedbank's dividends were going to be suspended. 
I, my suspicion is people saw how big the dividend is going to be um, in, I think it's next week or in two weeks, and you know they they say, wow, the share actually looks looks cheap. So the moves have really been astounding, and you know if you're able to take advantage of that, um, it can help you. Just one thing that's different, I think, if I think back to Nenegate, you know we had big big positions in British American Tobacco and South African breweries. We sold those aggressively to buy the the banks and the insurers and wanted to the property companies when they sold off. We're not doing that to the same extent this time. Um, so NASPAS and British American Tobacco have both been very strong shares. They happen to be our two biggest shares, but we're not aggressively selling them and buying, I would say, bucket loads of South Africa Inc. You know, we, we're fairly comfortable with the level of exposure we had. It's, if this lasts for six months, they're going to be, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of casualties amongst the smaller and, and mid-cap companies. What areas are you really staying away from when you say the, uh, where have you identified those potential casualties? Well, I think we, you know, some of them you, you're already going to be invested in. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to give individual names, obviously, but um, some of the stocks you would have been invested in, you can say, well, they're very depressed. You know, their balance sheets are not that strong. But, you know, in any kind of return to normality, we think they can wait through it. And then, boom, you get the virus and your business has no revenue for three months. Um, so I think one of the, the big tricks is going to be to say which businesses have quality assets and are solvent. And they're just facing a bit of a liquidity issue, which means banks will, will tide them through. I, I can't see a situation where South African banks want to end up owning, as an example, half the South African retail sector. You know, these are businesses that have been around, excluding Edcon, obviously, for a long time. And we know what their cash flows and profits are in, in more normal times, if I can call it that. So, you know, we, we would think those are the kind of businesses that, that will come through. But you don't want to sit with, in our view, certainly, 90% of your portfolio in consumer-facing mid-cap South Africa if this virus and lockdown carries on for, for longer than, than we all think possible. So if the president decides that after 21 days it hasn't been long enough and that the evidence that he has suggests that it's got to continue for three months, would that put a, a, a nail through the heart of some of those companies you're talking yeah, about? For sure. Look, I think, as I, as I mentioned, you know, the, the economic impact of this globally has, has yet to be has yet to be seen. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of people and everyone will have very strong views on this, whether morally or philosophically. There are a lot of people who would say there are 10 million Americans unemployed in two weeks and only 3,000 deaths or, or whatever. You know, like lots of people in poor and, and Midwest America are just being retrenched at a massive rate. And, you know, they, all of a sudden their queues for food, you know, which you haven't seen since the, the Great Depression. And if you think that's a much, much stronger economy than, than ours. To me, if you had to ask me what are the odds of the lockdown being lengthened, I think they're pretty good that they will, it will be lengthened, but maybe with you can go for a run or maybe one or two slightly less restrictions. I mean, I think as you pointed out in one of your emails, we might have got very lucky with this TB inoculation, but we don't know for sure yet. Um, but I think it's people don't know yet. And, and I think what really happens if you look in the north of Italy, when you've been sitting in a small apartment with no balcony for like three weeks and, and you've lost your job and you're wondering well, how you're going to go forward, you know, people start to react slightly differently. So that is the, the big risk we see, sort of social, sort of potential social unrest if the lockdown goes on for, for too long. We, we've got to get people tested, uh, antibodies, and said, okay, this portion of the population can go back to work. We realize there's a risk that a few of them are going to get the virus because otherwise, you know, how do, we, how do we come back from this? And that's why I mentioned at the beginning, I think markets will rally more sustainably. In other words, I mean, not just bounces when a clear, articulate exit strategy is, is agreed globally. An exit strategy, meaning yeah. not everybody goes back to work, but there would 
presumably some kind of a phased way that the yes. economy gets running again. And how do you travel to see your family if they were stuck in Joburg? Are you allowed to get on a plane from Cape Town to Joburg? Now, you know, there's just so many decisions. Can restaurants have more than 20 people in them? Will, will, will gyms open? I mean, they're just a lot of um, difficult things to decide. And I don't think we've seen all the practical things that are going to have to happen. And, and I guess if you ask me what is my one concern about South Africa versus the rest of the world, do we have enough competent people in our government to manage this very, very complex process? Because you can tell people all go home, otherwise we'll arrest you. But how do you get everyone to go back to businesses? How do you get businesses to start again? That's going to be a far more complex issue. And I just hope we have the necessary skills outside of the, the Treasury and, and the Reserve Bank to, to do that, because it's going to be very, very complex, even for countries much more sophisticated than ourselves. The full interview with Duncan Artis is available on the Biz News podcast channel. Now, here's a real Burmaka Plan story. South African businesswoman Dr. Mareheka Otto is stranded in Bali with just a cell phone to keep her connected with her consulting business back home. Bali is hardly the worst place on earth to be locked down in, but apart from the anxiety of forced separation from four children, Dr. Otto is also in the middle of launching a new gender perception tool. My business colleague Linda von Tilburg found out how she's coping. You know, Linda, I was, I thought I was really, um, clever and we booked a fantastic, um, breakaway, a mama breakaway just for 10 days to a yoga retreat and everything seemed fine and everything seemed, you know, it, we can go. I checked with the travel agency and I checked with, um, the people in, in the country here in Indonesia and then, um, about a week after the wheels started coming off. So then it started going really south very quickly. So I was here for about a week, you know, doing the normal touristy type things and doing the normal, um, you know, relaxation type things <laughs> that I thought I would do. And then um, we got notification that things are changing rapidly in South Africa. The schools started closing and flights got cancelled and yes, and then it was a lockdown. So very, very quickly, when I wanted to come back, the second flight that I booked, the lockdown happened and we couldn't land. This was not the Balinese. It was not from Indonesia. This was because of the South African lockdown. Were they prepared to let you go? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. They were absolutely fine. Yes, yes. And they still are. They're absolutely fine to let us go. It, It is not being able to land in South Africa. That's the problem. How long have you been there now? Today it is three weeks. So what was meant to be with flights and everything was meant to be ten days. It's <laughs> now a lot longer. So, so I, I'm quite ready to go home now. So how are you coping? Well, you know what? I must tell you, the place that I'm staying in, the people are really kind and very generous and and supportive, and my family is incredibly supportive. I miss my kids terribly. But it's, you know, it's amazing how in really tough times how your friends really show up and (laughs) they support you. But it's lonely. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very lonely and it it can be very hard at times. It's like the waves of the sea, I keep telling people. And one moment you feel like, oh, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And the next moment you think, oh, this is like the worst thing that could have happened. And what's home? You've got children at home? Yes, I've got four kids at home. 
and they're with their dad at the moment. So, so, and that's, that's, I think that's probably the hardest part for me. I think the work is tough because you've got to still do what you need to do and reinvent your whole business. Um, but missing the kids is, uh, well, that's, uh, I mean, if you're a mother, you know what I'm talking about. It's terrible. No, I can That's imagine. Really not the fun part. Mariega, how's how are the okay. Balinese handling um, this epidemic or the pandemic? Very differently from what I've been perceiving the world to be doing. And, and and I think that's also why it was such a massive shock on the system when I realized that I'm not going anywhere. Because yeah, the vibe has been completely different. It has been so calm and so relaxed. And people are self isolating, but they are not hectic on it. So people go and they go to their shops. You can go to a shop between 10 and 2 during the day because it's so hot, no virus will survive and neither would you. <laughs> but that's that's why it's open during those times. But for the rest of it, people are incredibly calm. And the Balinese community or the Balinese society is very much a Hindu religion-based society. And they've got a belief, they believe in reincarnation, so they believe this is full-on a survival of the fittest thing, it's an evolution thing that's happening. So if you didn't look after yourself, you didn't, there's lots of healthy fruit and beds and things around here, and you didn't do your prayers, and you didn't do what you meant to do, and it's your time to go, then it's your time to go. So they don't go necessarily to a doctor when they get sick. So the stats and the data that we see in the news of Indonesia is incredibly low. So there's a perception that not many people have it. But what is really going on is, that <laughs> it just don't report it because people die in their own homes. If they're old and they get sick, it's like any flu, then you pass away and you move on. So people are wearing masks, don't get me wrong, and they really try to keep a distance, etc. Um, and all their social events have been cancelled. But it's, there's no panic. There's no, it's completely calm. It's completely just quiet. And especially because there aren't any tourists. How are you managing to run a business while you're there? That is the really tricky part, I have to tell you, because I realized very quickly, and after, after really mourning um, for about a week and realizing it was like, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to stay here for, for quite some time now. Um, and it, it's completely uncertain. I realized I've got to pull myself towards myself, and I have to just start thinking about how do I change the way I do business. So, um, so at the moment, what really works for me are a few apps that, that I use to work because I only brought my phone. I don't have a laptop. I don't have anything here. And, and, and of course, we're six hours ahead of South Africa. So it's a bit of a challenge because I work during the mornings and then South Africa starts waking up and then they really want to get going and I'm exhausted. So, oh, <laughs> so the day is much longer. Yes. So no laptop, only a phone. Only a phone, only a phone. Me and my phone on my island, and it's <laughs> and it, it and and it's tricky, but it works in a weird way because I've had to adapt. So I use a lot of voice notes and, um, you know, speech sync to the apps where you where you can listen to long documents because it's so hard to read on a phone, and and and, and Otter, the one that you can talk and types it for you, you know. So so I'm adapting slowly but surely. <laughs> so that works so far. It was very interesting, especially the way we deal with our clients. You know, because the first client that we spoke to, 
uh, the client said, oh, you know what, don't worry, we will wait for, for you. Once when you're reunited with your family, we can continue the process. And I almost had a mini heart attack because I thought, really? There's no time for us to say things like that because we don't know what's going to happen. So, no, this is not how it's going to flow. So, and we've been quite firm to say to our clients, listen, this is going to be a permanent change. We have to rethink the way we travel, the way we engage with each other. When is it really necessary to have a, an in-person meeting? And when can you do it on Zoom or Skype or whatever platform you like to do it? Because that's going to be your new reality. If more and more people are going to say, no, 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 it's fine. I'll see you or we can really don't, we really don't have to see each other now. And that's what's going to happen. And I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I'm also working very hard with my to say, listen, we have to get very, very good at working remotely and working on an online way because it's, the, it's, it's going to be the new norm. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. F&B's property economists estimate the South African economy will contract by at least 4.5% this year and quite possibly more as a direct consequence of COVID-19. That's much worse than the 1.5% contraction of 2009 after the global financial crisis. Business.com's Jackie Cameron spoke to F&B property economist Sipamantla Mkwanazi who has compiled a fascinating report on the likely impact of COVID-19 on the bricks and mortar assets in South Africa. Expect far fewer property sales over the next year, and prices, particularly at the higher end, should come under severe pressure. I think there is very little doubt that the South African economy is going to contract, experience a deeper contraction this year compared to um, the previous global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Our estimates show around um, 4.5% contraction. So that's our base case. Obviously, if there, for example, if there is an extension on um, on, on lockdown, that number is going to um, is going to deteriorate. If, um, if, for example, the impact on labour market is much more than we expect. That number is also going to is, is, is going to worsen. So our number is a base case scenario. Obviously, with that, then comes that knock-on effect on um, on the labour market. So our estimations um, at the moment suggest that we might see job losses to the tune of around 350,000. So that means for the property market, then there is that shock, that income shock, which means that there are fewer people who will demand housing or fewer people who will demand mortgages. So so the entire demand in the, in the housing market is li- then likely to follow suit and, um, and, 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 and drop. So that's, that's the first part. That's the first important part. Um, and then the second one is that because there's this sudden change in human behavior, now we are unable to go and view property. People have just, have just decided not to, to delay their purchasing behavior. And we've also seen that there are some sellers that have um, taken their properties off the market in fear that they won't be able to attain their they are, they are, they are initial they are asking prices because the market at the moment is more favoring um, is more favoring the buyer so that the third impact is what we call the animal spirit so the, the confidence impact um, so a lot of buyers at the moment are staying away from the market um, just waiting for things to play out before they can delve into before they can just dive into the market and uh, um, commit to those substantial financial obligations the market is sort of uh, in a wait in a wait and see mode um, and I think the biggest 
biggest part is that we haven't seen the worst in terms of the income shock, but the exact impact of, of COVID-19 on the property market is likely to be more dramatic on the volume side than on the, on the price side. If you also use um, the Chinese experience, they experienced a, a much heavier decline in terms of volumes and prices stayed relatively, relatively the same. So we think that for the South African context, it's likely going, to be, likely going to be like that. Our situation is quite unique in that the weakness in the economy actually predates the COVID-19 outbreak. So the economy was already weak. So it's that interaction of this short-term shock in terms of this COVID-19, as well as this longer-term weakness in the economy, which then and then works itself up to a situation where the property market just remains um, subdued for the foreseeable future. Preliminary data so far suggest shows that um, volume that's just declined by around about 40% year on year to the first quarter in 2020 compared to the first quarter in, in, in 2019. And mind you, volumes were already volumes were already low. I um, mean, this is exacerbated by current lockdown in that nothing is happening at the moment. The deep office is closed. So the market is almost going to come to a standstill in the first 21 days. It will recover slowly, but at this stage, we don't expect that there will be any growth in volumes this year. In fact, we expect that there will be a decline overall um, for 2020 as a whole. For the lockdown, definitely um, there's been a sharper than um, expected decline in, in, in volumes with buyers just waiting to see what how this, this plays out. So yes, there was um, excess supply in, 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 um, in, in rental store, particularly flats and um, in townhouses. What we have seen is that because demand um, didn't match that supply, developers now if you look at um, properties in the planning stage or so approval at that approval stage, it's declined quite significantly um, to match with the lower um, with the lower demand that we are seeing at the moment. I mean, we think that with this shock in the system, um, it's only going to exacerbate that trend. It's unlikely that any developer would want to flood the market with new stock with, um, with 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 demand so low and with these heightened levels of uncertainty. And we've also seen right now that there are projects, there are construction projects that have experienced disruptions and delays due to the inavailability of, uh, of raw materials and uh, shortages of, um, of, of, of construction staff. We have already started seeing um, defaults rising, but I have to say that the financial institutions are more proactive now um, than they were in 2008 on prices. And judging by what happened in Hong Kong and in China, where volumes have dropped dramatically and prices just slowed, but they didn't really decline. This has been episode 14 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.